This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Gadigal land. And this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. After years of unprecedented upheaval in response to the COVID pandemic and successive natural disasters, the election of a new government in May brought a renewed sense that politics could be done differently. But for many, the challenges are not over. Consistent and devastating flooding has left communities across the country struggling to rebuild and move forward. The COVID pandemic is continuing to threaten society's most vulnerable, and the rising cost of living has left many Australians feeling hard up. But as the year draws to a close, is there hope on the horizon? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisher about the stories that defined the year. It's Friday, the 16th of December. Good morning, Lenore. Good morning, Gabrielle. Good morning, Mike. And good morning. Welcome to our final episode of the year. That's why I was sounding so enthusiastic. Yeah, <laughs> it has been a long year, hasn't it? It Lenore? really has. <laughs> and I think the, the election kind of took up quite a lot of um, oxygen, so it seems like a good place to start. After that, we were quite hopeful after Labor's win on this podcast, that we might see a change in the way politics is done, maybe more emphasis on integrity. How do you think that has come to pass? To an extent, yes, I think it has come to pass. I think there's often a temptation after elections, particularly elections that change the government, to kind of come up with sweeping theories about how everything has changed and sometimes it doesn't pan out. But I think in this case, things have changed. I mean, The vote for the parties was at a record low and the vote for the Greens and the Teals really did reward a different kind of politics, a different kind of campaigning. And I think that is likely to be, to some extent, an ongoing feature of our politics. Anthony Albanese has changed the tone, dialed down the outrage machine, slowed the spin, just sort of got on with the job and the polls are showing that he's being richly rewarded for that. So there has been a real shift. But I think the tempering, the reason there's a sort of a but in my tone of voice is that The result was also really driven by the fact that Scott Morrison was so overwhelmingly unpopular. You know, the ANU election study the other week said he was the least popular leader going into an election since they began researching (laughs) in 1987. And, you know, we saw in the Victorian election where Dan Andrews was not so unpopular, despite what some of the News Corp papers would have you believe, the Tills did less well. So... Is this a permanent shift in politics? I think it is to a degree, but I think a lot of that depends on what the incumbents do from now and and how it pans out. But I do think things have changed to some extent. A big part of Labor's election campaign was their promised action on the climate crisis. They even promised they might be able to end the climate wars. Mike, how has that gone? I definitely don't think we could say the climate wars have ended, but they've got their emissions target through Parliament. That was relatively straightforward, but symbolic to have that legislated. 
On other aspects, they have done a deal on electric vehicles. Uh, the Greens and some of the independents pressed for changes on their tax concessions for hybrids and focusing completely on EV. So that was kind of a interesting, in a small way, example of how the new parliament has worked, I think, quite interestingly and relatively well. They have sort of done the relatively easy bits of their promises, and but we have yet to see you know, for reasons just to do with time, how they're actually going to make that happen in meeting that target. So obviously there's a whole lot of work still to be done that will start to happen early next year. But so far... So good? So good, I guess. They came back from COP with an enhanced international reputation. They're hoping to host the COP down the track here in the Pacific. I guess that's still up in the air. But perhaps more importantly is just, I think the, the key thing is just going to be how they really set about using the frighteningly complex for most people, including me, uh, (laughs) mechanisms to actually drive down emissions to make those targets into a reality. But it's interesting, isn't it, the extent to which things have moved on a bit so quickly in that over recent days, while the government's been trying to get this uh, gas or power price package through the industry, the gas industry was crying blue murder and lobbying And really, it didn't have all that much impact. Mm. So I wonder if next year when they start to try to legislate the safeguards mechanism, which is going to, you know, it's meant to be the thing that forces down industrial emissions. That's the point of the exercise. It was sort of sitting there during the conservative years in government, but they never used it to actually push anyone to do anything. Mm. Now it's meant to be effective and inevitably sections of industry that are sort of energy intensive are going to cry blue murder. It'll be really interesting to see if anybody listens to them then. They don't seem to have the public on their side this time, do they, unlike the mining tax years? No, well, I think that the public really wanted the climate wars to be over. The public Mm. voted very comprehensively for a parliament that would act on climate change, whether via the Labor government or the Teal independents, and they expect that that will happen. And this mechanism is one of the most important policies the government has to make it happen. So I do think there's been a change in tone. I mean, Peter Dutton hasn't changed his tone all that much. He's still running climate policy as a sort of retail political price war, but he's not getting much traction either, you'd have to say. I suppose the the thing that could change people's outlook on that is the energy prices themselves, which, uh, of course, will hit people pretty hard. Uh, even with the changes that are going through Parliament this week. But uh, even on that, there was another example of how the Parliament has worked sort of in the way that people predicted immediately after the election, where Labor's, you know, very different policies from the coalition would be not waved through, but would be amended in perhaps positive ways by the Greens and other independents. And that was the case again with the power prices this week, where um, the Greens have sort of traded more action on electrification, converting homes from gas to electric, although we've yet to see any detail on that. But it was just another example of that kind of constructive work in the parliament, I think, where opposition parties are actually working to amend the legislation in ways that they see to improve it. And the government in several cases has accepted that. And politically, that's why it's so important that this stuff goes through and takes some of the edge off those price rises before the government starts talking about the safeguard mechanism. I mean, I think the sequencing is is important policy-wise, but it's also important politically. 
Against this policy backdrop, we've had seemingly unending natural disasters in the terms of flooding across large tracts of Australia this year. What do we know about how these communities are coping? Mm, they're not. I mean, basically it's been flooding somewhere since February. We've almost become inured to floods. It started in southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales, but then Sydney and then right across New South Wales and Victoria. And the floodwaters are still moving down the Murray-Darling. There's still many towns that are flooded. And one of the ways that we've managed to cover the floods is through our rural network edited by Gabby Chan with freelancers. So we've got people in a lot of these towns. And I was really moved, I guess, by one of the freelancers called Tom Pleavy who wrote about disaster fatigue the other week. And he was writing about this woman in Gunnedah who's a mindset coach and she's understandably finding her job pretty heavy going at the moment because her town was facing their ninth flood in six months. And, you know, she was just talking about the trauma of that sort of ongoing uncertainty and upheaval. And I I do think those towns and the places that are flooded are facing disaster fatigue. I think we've got to be careful that we don't face news fatigue because this is a really huge disaster, a huge ongoing, slow-moving disaster that is just going right down the eastern seaboard and having a massive impact on people's lives. There's been two kinds of stories. There's been that static, Mm. ongoing, difficult coping with floods over a really long period, revisiting those towns to find out how they're going with this long stretches where it seems unending. And then there's there was mostly earlier in the year the kind of dramatic... The drama, yeah. ...stories in the Northern Rivers, particularly. We had one particular story that Elias Vasante covered with amazing photographs also in Mullumbimby where the town had just looked like absolute wreckage and we saw it again more recently further down the, the rivers. But I also, what I really liked out of that story was the picture of how people on the ground had picked themselves up and organised themselves into mm. volunteer corps and used skills that people in the local area had without much prompting to kind of do what they could to rescue people when, before they could get help from other emergencies, from, you know, from the kind of official emergency services. So there have been stories really of resilience, but the one that Gunnedah later in the year showed how that really takes a toll over time when mm. because these disasters don't just come along and pass and then it's put it all back together again. Some towns have been hit by... It's again and again, s- yeah. ...numerous dramatic events or others have just been kind of in that sort of constant feeling like they're underwater and not in quite such a dramatic way, but it just never seems to end. And as Lenore says, it's really important that we don't take our eye off what's going on out there. Even as in South Australia, they're kind of still waiting for the waters to come down, the, to all join together and come down the Murray towards the mouth and they're still expecting flooding there. I think that kind of fatigue has also been evident in readers' and listeners' reactions to COVID, right? Yeah. I mean, the pandemic isn't going away, especially for immunocompromised people or vulnerable people. How are we continuing to report on the pandemic, Lenore? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, you know, many people are moving on from COVID and, but COVID hasn't moved on. And in part, you know, yes, we're vaccinated and yes, we have antivirals, but there's still like 100 deaths a week or more, which is way more than this time last year when we were shutting borders and we were all still incredibly anxious. So I think, yeah, we have to get back to some kind of normal, but I'm concerned that it might be tempting to forget about the vulnerable 
especially when our health systems are so stretched, when it's so hard to get an appointment at the doctors, you know, and the government's just wound back the measures for PCR testing, which makes sense. And for lots of us, COVID is likely to be a bit like the flu. But for vulnerable people, they're going to have to find a way now to get a PCR test and then get back to the doctor and get their antivirals. I just think we've got to be really mindful of keeping an eye, keeping reporting resources on what's happening to those people, and also to keep reporting resources on long COVID, which we're just starting to figure out about and thousands and thousands of people are experiencing. I mean, there's sort of a theme running through this, isn't there, that we've been through these years of massive upheaval and, you know, through politics, people just want to sort of get back to some stability in terms of natural disasters. You know, we're hoping that the weather patterns will change and obviously global heating will continue, but hopefully we'll have a bit of a respite from the kind of frequency of natural disasters. And in COVID as well, people just want to get on with their lives. But in every case, there's an ongoing legacy of the trauma that we've been through. And I just think we need to, you know, we need to stay on it. Mm. The COVID story that really brought me up short recently was the one where the New South Wales government was forced to cancel more than $30 million in fines that had been issued for breaches of COVID orders during the lockdowns, partly because it just illustrated how poorly thought out and implemented those fines were and how unfair they were on more on quite vulnerable people, but also the complete change around from how crazy those days were when people were getting fined for like riding their bike. When you couldn't sit on a park bench. (laughs) And straying into the wrong council area or resting in the middle of their exercise period and fined in some cases quite large amounts of money, like $1,000 for those kind of offences. And even though some of those fines have now been rescinded kind of on a technicality, there are many more that still haven't and but not just in New South Wales. No wonder people want to get on and (laughs) not go back to anything like remotely like what we went through there. It just seems like, yes, we're at least in a different mindset now to sort of looking back, it feels like they were lunatic days. The election climate and COVID really dominated the news cycle this year, but there were other really important stories, weren't there, Lenore? Yeah, there were. I mean, I'm recording this podcast from Brisbane where I'm visiting our fabulous Queensland team who write uh, state news for us. And they've done an amazing job this year in exposing the sort of inadequacies in the Queensland Police Service, particularly our reporter here, Ben Smee, who's just been on this story for a long time, reporting on what is really you know, a completely messed up, broken culture in the Queensland police force, including allegations of sexism and misogyny and racism. The state government announced an inquiry into police responses to domestic and family violence in part because of his reporting, I think. And then he and Eden Gillespie kept working with a whistleblower in particular to reveal like really terrible instances of racism and racist comments in the police watch house here, which prompted an apology from Queensland's Deputy Police Commissioner. So the Queensland Police are obviously in the news at the moment for the horrific shootings out near Chinchilla. And that's a terrible story. And those police officers died in the line of duty in a really terrible way. But I do think that the work that the Queensland Bureau has done exposing and highlighting inadequacies in the Queensland police force has been really important. Mike, what were some of the stories that really had an impact on you? 
We've done a lot of reporting this year on various aspects of the cost of living crisis, but the ones I'd really like to highlight are numerous stories we've done on the rental crisis in particular, which has become much more sharply into focus this year, at least in our reporting, where housing, reporting on housing in Australia generally has focused on house prices and very often sort of celebrating when they go up and uh, bemoaning the fact when they go down, which is a kind of odd way to look at it when you think about it because that only (laughs) privileges a certain part of the population and not the most uh, vulnerable one. But we've done a a huge amount of reporting through numerous reporters, but particularly in our inequality team, Stephanie Convery particularly has done a huge amount on renting. There was one case in Sydney in New South Wales where a real estate agent was telling tenants to keep their windows open in the middle of winter to keep the mould problem down. There was a second case in Brisbane where real estate agency was advising landlords to put their rents up by 20%, and that has all tied into other reporting where we've looked at how people have been forced even out of rental properties into campgrounds and caravans and other really insecure forms of accommodation just simply because there are no properties to rent. And the ones that are are too expensive. So that whole gamut of reporting on that part of the housing crisis has been really important. So there have been quite a few bleak stories this year. We've come, we're sort of stepping our way out of a very, very difficult time. And I saw that the Guardian Essential poll said that I think it was 40% of Australians think that 2023 is going to be a better year. And I've got to say, I'm with them. Next, a bad year for monarchists, a good year for birds, and all of the stories that brought us joy throughout the year. Hey, Laura Mafiotes here. If you like keeping up to speed with the day's news, you should subscribe to our free newsletters. They're short and curated, so you don't miss a beat. And there's two of them, Morning Mail and Afternoon Update. Visit our website where you'll be able to subscribe to both newsletters directly from our homepage. Okay, back to the podcast. Now we come to the stories we can't get out of our head. Now, this has been kind of a favourite part of my week this year. (laughs) In Among the Doom and Gloom, we had a few minutes each week where we could talk about something that brought us a little bit of joy sometimes. So in an effort to end the year on a high note, Lenore, what was the story that brought you joy this year? Look, I think it's a truism of journalism that sometimes when you need a bit of joy, you look to the animal story. And we did have quite a few fantastic animal stories um, this year, quite a few great bird stories, but actually the one that has stuck in my mind the most is the seal that broke into a home in New Zealand, traumatised the cat and hung out on the couch. (laughs) That was very good. (laughs) Mike, what was yours? The first one I'd like to pick up is the one about the Australian Monarchist League calling for a boycott (laughs) of Netflix over the crown, (laughs) partly because of the sheer futility of that idea that people would listen to the Australian Monarchist League rather than their own (laughs) indicators about whether they were enjoying the crown or not. 
but also because of the incredibly pompous language that they used in their statement where they called on monarchists and right-minded people to boycott <laughs> and uh, accused the show of purposefully building a series including falsehoods and inaccuracies about people still living. Speaking of the Crown, one of the things in the Crown that I just I can't get out of my head and love is, I don't know if, if listeners have watched the Crown, but it shows that the Queen, when she's having audiences with people, has this little buzzer that she can push when someone's waffling on and she wants the meeting to be over. She just pushes a buzzer and then the meeting is over. And I, every time she does it, I sit on the sofa thinking, <laughs> I want one of those things. <laughs> anyway, this week at the RoboDebt Royal Commission, which is obviously a very serious undertaking into very horrific maladministration of public policy, but there was a sort of slightly lighter moment when the Royal Commission kind of had a buzzer when the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison was giving evidence because he waffled on and evaded questions in the way that he very often did at press conferences. But we had neither the buzzer nor really the sort of authority or ability to make the Prime Minister answer the question. But the Royal Commissioner did and kept saying, you know, can I just get you to stick to answering the question? I do understand you come from a background where rhetoric is important, but it's necessary to listen to the question and just answer it without extra detail or unnecessary detail. And I was thinking, yes, she has the equivalent of the buzzer. Are there any final thoughts or stories you'd like to share with listeners at the end of this year? The only other one I would like to mention, which brought joy to a lot of people, although it also did have a somewhat serious background, was the one where the, the Bureau of Meteorology, surprisingly, in the middle of all the floods, put out a statement saying that it no longer wanted to be referred to as the bomb, but instead should be referred to as the Bureau, prompting Needless to say, lots of headlines about the bomb, <laughs> referring to it very often as the bomb, as it is often referred to. And uh, they had to backtrack on that. But needless to say, that, gave, that story gave us a lot of fun for a day. Hashtag priorities. Yes. <laughs> I have one last one, which is... Probably terrible because our producer, Miles Herbert, is absolutely fantastic and on it every week. But he did actually feature in one of our stories about the terrible splendour in the grass that was actually splendour in the bog. And I remember <laughs> that he had been helping us record an episode and then was sort of complaining that he was going to splendour in the grass and then became a quoted source in our story about the bog. His quote was, as we were driving into the venue to our left and right, there were people who'd just been like, fuck this, I can't wait any longer, and pulled off to sleep in their cars. He and his party persisted, but then at the end had to just bail out and managed to get a hotel room at 5.30am. So I'm sorry, Miles, that you had such a bad time at Splendour. I'm glad you featured in the story and thank you for all your work on the podcast this year. Hear, hear. What about you, Gabs? What's your best story of the year from your point of view? It had to be when The Guardian featured in the now international success story, Heartbreak High. Do you know who I just got off the phone with? The Guardian, Emery. The Guardian. Well, it's been a great year. Thanks for showing up week after week on this show. Hope you have a great Christmas. Goodbye, Lenore. See you, Gabs. Have a good Christmas. Thank you. Bye, Mike. Bye to you and to all the listeners. Thank you for listening. Thanks so much for listening. The Newsroom Edition of Full Story will be back to you in late January. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannan. The executive producer is me, Gabrielle Jackson. 
Next week, Full Story will be back with a series of amazing interviews with some of our best editors throughout The Guardian, telling you about the year that was and what's coming for next year. And the first two weeks of January, we have a delightful little surprise for you called Full Story Summer. So stay tuned in. We'll see you next week.